Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm John McEnroe, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. The US Open is upon us, and it's now 15 years since the Arthur Ashe Stadium was unveiled. To mark that milestone, we pay tribute to the man whom the stadium was named after. And as you'll hear, the late, great Arthur Ashe left a lasting effect on people, including John McEnroe and Bjorn Borg. We'll also preview the year's final major, right here on the Tennis Podcast. Well, Catherine, there's just a a few days to go now until the US Open gets underway. I'll be going to New York, Flushing Meadows, on uh, on Friday and uh, experiencing the the build-up, the qualifying weekend. It's it's a fantastic few days, really, to get over to New York, finally banish the, the jet lag. I'm a bit of a sufferer. I don't know about you when you've been over there in the past, but uh, it always gets me a little bit. But then after a little while, you know, you get over there onto onto the site there and, and soak up the atmosphere of the final Grand Slam tournament of the year. And, you know, it's it's probably the least um, efficient in some ways of all the Grand Slams, I think, the US Open. But in many, in many ways, it's, it's, it's probably my favourite. I, I kind of like the chaos of it all. What do you think? I, yeah, I do too. It doesn't seem very trendy to say that the US Open's your favourite. You're sort of supposed to say either Wimbledon or, or the Australian Open. But I absolutely love it. I love how brash and American it is. I love that the... Arthur Ashe Stadium is so ridiculously large. You know, I love, I love that it can be thirty-five degrees and uh, ridiculously humid. I, I, I think it's a fantastic event. Yeah, you mentioned the Arthur Ashe Stadium there, of course, christened that name when it was built and unveiled in 1997. And it is Arthur Ashe who we are going to be featuring in episode 10 of the Tennis Podcast. We are going to be doing a tribute to the great Arthur Ashe who died in 1993. We've got uh, all sorts of special guests on the show today uh, to pay tribute to him, including John McEnroe, Bjorn Borg, Mats Velander, Cliff Drysdale and the great tennis broadcaster and journalist Richard Evans. They'll all be coming up here on the Tennis Podcast paying tribute to Arthur Ashe, uh, who, um, yeah, I mean, I think when that stadium was built and unveiled in 1997, I don't think anybody could believe their eyes, could they, the, the sheer size of it. But if we talk a little bit about, about the tournament as a whole, I mean, I think it's probably got the most important memory for me in 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 my tennis life, really, or, or, or certainly my, my appreciation of tennis, in as much as in 1991... Uh, when Jimmy Connors, at the age of 
39 reached the uh, the semi-finals and beat Patrick McEnroe and Aaron Crickstein swearing all the way and shouting his mouth off and getting the crowd involved. I mean, that was really one of my first main non-Wimbledon tennis memories. And it was the, it was the moment that made me think, I've got to work in that sport somehow. Yeah, I've I've got some very significant early memories of the US Open. Sort of, um, I remember very clearly for some reason. Um, I remember very clearly a match in the quarterfinals. I think it was two thousand and one. Uh, it must have been because it was the year when uh, Leighton Hewitt went on to win, and Andy Roddick. Not that I mean Leighton Hewitt was still only um, nineteen or twenty, but Andy Roddick was an up and coming. Uh, um, baseball cap or visor wearing was it at the time American and I remember it going to a fifth set and I remember there being a dreadful call um on the far on the far line there being an overall and I just remember all the drama it was a it was a night match um in the Arthur Ashe Stadium with an American American on the court which is for atmosphere is something that it's hard to to beat in tennis and I just remember um just the the emotion and the the atmosphere involved in that match was um and the drama i suppose was quite captivating andy roddick probably wouldn't say that he doesn't yeah, look, I look back I on it he went absolutely bananas didn't he, <laughs> he in, absolutely in did yeah uh, uh, moment I, i'm trying to remember who the umpire was i, I i've got a it's f- an umpire we haven't seen very much of in the past decade i no, think no no it's funny that isn't it yeah. <laughs> yes andy andy roddick's had a little bit of influence yeah. perhaps there <laughs> Um, but uh, no, I mean it's it's. I think the night sessions there really create an atmosphere, a sort of cauldron, don't they? Uh, this feeling that that you're suddenly in a bit of a dogfight, no matter who's playing, and the crowd they're totally unregulated. Nobody cares about the airs and graces. There's no sort of waiting for the end of change of ends to come in everybody just walks in with their massive hot dogs and their tray full of drinks and and quiet please no I'm going to shout as loud as I can and I'm going to point my finger at whoever I don't like on the tennis court and if the umpire gets gets me annoyed I'm going to let him know about it yeah I mean it is brash but it's so unashamedly brash and I mean they do do drama in a in a quite spectacular way in in New York particularly with the night sessions I think the night sessions what bring bring that event to life um and yeah it's just yeah it's just that there's so so unashamed about it you know the the heckling during the points and all that kind of thing that's that's what you know you're going to get at the u.s open and everyone's be boring sort if of... there wasn't there wouldn't it sorry it'd be boring if it didn't well happen. yeah exactly it gives every you know every event's got its own little you know it's not in the crowds that you know parisian crowds have um have got their own style of heckling as well haven't they so i mean it's not unique to the us open but it's every slam has its own character and i think there's a lot to be said for for what the us open's got going for it we should say as well they've improved the uh the place dramatically over the last few years i mean i remember in the early years that i used to watch the tournament it was on the the flight path from laguardia airport and, and literally every other every other point you you had a plane go directly overhead and you couldn't hear yourself think you couldn't hear the players couldn't hear the ball being hit they couldn't you you didn't hear the crowd anymore um there there are a lot of improvements that have been made along those lines and and they have tried to address some of the the issues at the the tournament and you know i don't care if if things don't completely work perfectly i i just i just love the atmosphere i mean okay i think the, the four monday finals in a row 
maybe needs to be looked at even a bit more than it has done but uh, but i mean you know it's all part of it really and uh, and personally i can't wait to get out there and uh, and sample it yet again so let's just have um, a little word about uh, who's looking in the best sort of form because it's really difficult to pick isn't it because we had murray winning the olympics we had then djokovic coming out and and putting his own marker down and winning toronto and now we've had federer winning cincinnati yeah, well, it just goes to back up um, what we were saying in the past couple of weeks, or what you in particular were saying about about it being one of the most open slams um, in recent years. Open, open, only to you know, pretty much the exclusive club, which is the top three. But that's still more open than um, than any slams really been in the in the past few years. So we're, I think. we're ruling out anybody from from outside coming in and, and breaking. <sighs> not in. not ruling out, but. As always, I'd consider it highly unlikely, wouldn't you? Yeah, even without Nadal. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think it is. I mean, I think it would take a monumental effort for a player to get to the point. I mean, don't forget, we're going to have one of them in the semifinals. Um, somebody out of out of that group, um, outside of that group, is going to be in the semis, and they must have played well to get there. So it's a great opportunity, but... You know, for them to suddenly bring their very best on that semi-finals day, Super Saturday, you know, against one of those three, it's it's a big ask. Yeah, and most... in, in, in fact, in terms of in terms of somebody outside of the top four, so you're going to have David Ferrer seeded fourth. Yeah. I suppose Rafa's ab- absence, depending on how the draw goes, could benefit him mm. if he ends up on on the opposite side of the draw. But outside of that, actually. Rafa's absence won't have that much of an effect because they'll still have to beat uh, one of that top three in the semis, in the semis and in the final. So, um, who's it going to be, Catherine? Who, who's going to come through? That's really, really difficult, isn't it? Because I mean, Murray obviously has had a shocker since the Olympics, but he he always struggles with change of surface and also pre-tournament form. How much can you read into that with Murray? I mean, he he did nothing at Queens and then. Had his best ever result at Wimbledon, reaching the final, and then won the Olympics on grass. Um, and the year before, he won Queens and only got to the semis at Wimbledon. And so, I, I'm not reading too much into into Murray's uh, poor form in Cincinnati and um, and Toronto. Although it 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 can't be helping him. It's certainly I don't think it's a a massive indictment of his form, but um, it's certainly not a positive thing. Federer. His performance against Djokovic in the Cincinnati final was sensational, but then Djokovic won won the week before. I mean, it's I'm not making it any clearer at all, am I? I'm just laying out the facts. So clear, I clear don't have mud, a clue, Catherine. basically. <laughs> no, it's, but it, it makes it interesting. You know, it'll open it up for somebody to to come through. And and the thing is, there's nobody in obviously great form. That's the other thing. It's not like you can say, oh, well, Del, okay, Del Potro's been playing well, but he's a bit injured at the moment. Mm. Uh, Ranić hasn't hasn't really set it on fire this summer. Um, players like Thomas Burditch is having a terrible time of it just at the moment. So it's really difficult to see who might might yeah, come. Somebody through like and... Thomas Burditch should be thinking, "Goodness me, this is my time. You know, I've yeah. got to get it together." But it's it's not happening for them, is it? Well, usually we like to get our predictions in, don't we? Well, I think we're going to leave it to a couple of blokes who 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 maybe know a little bit more about it than we do. Let's start with Mats Verlander. 
My prediction for the US Open is Andy Murray winning. Um, and I'm not saying that just because he won the Olympics, but I think he's a different man. I think uh, Ivan Lendl has helped him tremendously. I think Andy Murray now knows after winning the Olympics that he can beat them. I think the three out of five sets with the attitude he has now is going to favor him. And when he plays well, with a good attitude, he's at least as good a player um, as, uh, as the other top three. Taking Nadal out, it might mean that he only has to beat one of um, Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer along the way, and that's going to make it easier. So my prediction is Andy Murray uh, winning in the finals against Djokovic or Roger Federer. Well, Mats Verlander there, Catherine, he's pretty uh, emphatic, isn't he? Andy Murray's going to win it, simple as that. Yeah, I find it very difficult to disagree with Mats Verlander as well. He is a man that talks a heck of a lot of sense. He's he's intelligent, articulate, articulate, and um, he knows the game incredibly well. So maybe I'll hedge my bets and uh, just go with what Mats is saying because um, yes. yeah. He, well, I wonder whether we can get an argument out of Goran Ivanišević because uh, I know you, you you saw him the other day as well, and you asked uh, Goran what what he thought and. I don't think he's going to say much different. My pick and my is not my favorite, but uh, one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Well, really, he deserves and would like him to win. It's Andy because he really played great Olympic Games and I think this gives him uh, extra motivation, extra confidence because US Open is, I think, his best surface. So I think he should do it. And do you think Rafa's withdrawal benefits Murray the most of everyone? I don't think so. I think Andy is ready with with Rafa, without Rafa, he proved that in Wimbledon, Rafa was there, so he made the finals, so he beat Rafa before in the Grand Slam, so I don't think uh, it's going to benefit him. If he plays well, he can win it. You know? So there we have it, Goran Ivanisevic is behind Andy Murray as well. It's the Andy Murray podcast, not the tennis podcast uh, uh, this week at the moment, and, and it's, it's, you know, I... I <laughs> I think it's not as straightforward as that because I, I do think Djokovic and Federer are in fine form, but I just think maybe this is the time. Mm. I think this might be Andy Murray's time. Mm, so do I. So do I. Um, but I'm I'm so wary of predicting him because, as I'm sure everyone remembers, I predicted him for Wimbledon, um, and then I didn't predict him. I predicted him to lose in the final of the Olympics, and I got that one wrong. So I feel like predicting him might be might be a bit damning for him but um it's it's interesting with Goran's prediction he so desperately wants Murray to win doesn't he He really feels for him he really understands the weight of expectation particularly Cranky, at Wimbledon yeah. well I mean, but, maybe if Andy Murray puts another decade's worth of this in and uh, without yeah. winning the title then he'll really know what Goran felt like yeah exactly exactly 
So well, that's uh, that's to come uh, in the next couple of weeks. Tennis World's eyes are going to be on the U.S. Open in Flushing Meadows in New York. Um, the women's title quickly. I'm going to go for Serena. Boring. I know. Boring. Are you saying you're not? Well. <laughs> well, there you go. No, actually, I might go for Petra Kvitova. You know, really? She's, she's wow. in a bit of form at the moment. What do you think? Maybe Petra Kvitova. You, you're no, saying, no, honestly, if it's a Petra Kvitova, Serena Williams final, you'd pick Petra oh, Kvitova. I'm going to go for Petra. Okay, yeah, I'm going to go for Petra Kvitova. There you go. You heard it here. And uh, <laughs> I, I have the facility to delete podcasts uh, of previous issues if, if I get it wrong. So this one may strangely disappear if that doesn't turn out to be correct. But anyway, we shall see. Um, I think it's time to pay tribute to Arthur Ashe, uh, a man who won Wimbledon in 1975, aged 32 years of age, with a, a wonderful blend of slice and dice tennis against Jimmy Connors. It, he was known as a big hitter, was Arthur Ashe, but he didn't play big hitting tennis against Connors. He slowballed him, he beat him, but that was really only half the story of, of, of the man because he had a huge impact on so many people's lives. He suffered and fought racism, he campaigned tirelessly for equal, equal rights, and in the final year of his life he fought to broaden awareness of AIDS. He contracted the HIV virus from a blood transfusion to help treat his heart condition after he suffered a heart attack in 1979. And he ultimately died in 1993, aged just 49 because of AIDS. A really tragic story and tragic end to his life. But but what a man. He I, I never had the, the, the pleasure of meeting him, Catherine. Neither did you. But we've heard so much about him, particularly over the last week, really, as we've sought to gain the opinions of people that did know it. Yeah, speaking to guys like McEnroe and Verlander and, and how they spoke about him, it was really something something special, a huge fondness um, and a huge sadness as well that um, that he really, you know, he should be on the Champions Tour with all, with all of them today. You know, he should be still a huge contributor to tennis and, um, and it's and terribly sad. And life itself, sad. I mean, you mm. know, he, he was such an important man. Mm, absolutely, not just in sport. Um, huge contributor to um, to the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa and, and civil rights movement in America, all those sorts of things. And um, yeah, obviously a very special human being. And the man who and the man whose name is uh, on the Arthur Ashe Stadium, the Centre Court in New York. And we can now hear from five men, all of whom have played or been involved in tennis for a long, long time, and all of whom knew Arthur. I actually met Arthur pretty early on and played doubles with him as an amateur. He took me sort of under his wing a little bit, which was pretty nice for him to do because here he is, this guy who's the consummate gentleman, being with sort of this young hothead. And so uh, he he was he, he sort of gave me like credibility in a sense that I wasn't just this whiner, or, you know, spoiled kid. And, and and so that meant a lot from that standpoint. And. And obviously he helped tennis a lot because sort of uh, the way he played was um, uh, considered at the time as a big hitter. And then all of a sudden he outthought Connors at Wimbledon. So all of a sudden there was like, whoa, he's, you know, this, this approach is really interesting that you know, he came in with like a totally different game plan. So when he beat Jimmy in 75 at Wimbledon, that was an unbelievable thing. And, 
And also, he, he was my Davis Cup captain for a number of years, and uh, we had a lot of good moments, probably more off the court than on. We had a lot of good talks, and um, half the time during the match, he was chasing me, trying to get me to stop yelling at an umpire or whatever, but uh, we had some good times and laughs, and um, it was just really tragic to sort of, it seemed like so unlucky, because I actually played him in the Masters in 79. That was my first sort of major title. I beat Arthur in a very close match in the final, and um, it was soon after that that he had a heart attack at about like 36 or 7, which seemed bizarre, and then topped that with uh, having some type of blood transfusion that resulted in him getting AIDS. So it seemed like for some very unfair reason the odds were stacked against him so it felt like his time was way too short but uh, certainly his influence on me was big. I think Arthur, uh, I saw him first time in the beginning of the 70s and I, I thought he played a very elegant tennis, I mean uh, played different and I mean he was a great champion and uh, you know uh, great person, I, I started to know him uh, better you know you, you, like in the middle of the 70s, uh, we played many matches, but he, he, he had a great personality. Uh, tennis missed him a lot. He did a lot for tennis. Uh, uh, and I think he was one of the first black persons really to, to do a lot for, 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 for tennis. And, uh, you know, I remember all the matches I played against him. And, uh, but he's always been very nice to me. I mean, uh, I, came, I came up when I was like, uh, a junior, like 14, 15 years old, and you know he was already, you know, one of the best players in the world. But he always, like, not took care of me, but he was nice to me. Yeah, Arthur Ashe was obviously a, a great inspiration. Um, I was quite connected. I was a vice president of the ATP myself uh, in the late 80s, and I was. Uh, uh, very much part of um, the ATP starting the ATP tour and, and the ATP breaking away from um, from the International Tennis Federation in those days it was called the Grand Prix and of course Arthur Ashe is the, is the man of the player that started the ATP in 73 so uh, in that way he was uh, he's very special and, and of course a voice he was the Davis Cup captain for America uh, in 1984 and when um, John McEnroe, Jimmy Connors, Peter Fleming, Jimmy Arias, maybe the greatest Davis Cup team on paper of all time, came to Sweden and played on clay against uh, me and Stefan Edberg, Henrik Sundström, Anders Gerrit. Sweden hadn't won Davis Cup since 75 with Bjorn Borg in it and uh, basically won it on his own. And suddenly I had won a couple of majors in, 80, in 82, 83 and, and we thought we had a chance to beat the greatest team of all time. And Arthur, on top of those, that team, was the captain. So it was very special. He always treated the Swedes, I think, had a lot of respect for um, the Swedish players and not only because of Bjorn Borg but because of the players before and Arthur Ashe being, uh, uh, being as uh, much of a gentleman as he was and being politically that involved I think he's, uh, he is, um, he's rated most probably uh, in terms of tennis players that have gone on and done other things as uh, the highest up of any tennis player I think on the men's side I think Billie Jean King would be the woman that would, uh, would take the same, fill the same shoes I learned to really respect, admire and love Arthur um, he was just a great guy. He was uh, he was warm and thoughtful and feeling, and he, you know, he'd been he had been struggling with the whole African American thing in in the U.S., which is it's no myth, it's no uh, it's no smokescreen, it's it's real. 
he had to struggle with that. He chose his course. Uh, I think the history will judge it was the right course um, of non-confrontational and using his brain and his, his logic to argue the case. And he did it. He did it beautifully. He was a very smart guy. Uh, and he was also a, a fun guy to be around. I mean, he was... Arthur had his fun times and, <clears throat> and he had his serious side as well. He was a very admirable guy. He was a thoroughly remarkable human being. And Gene Scott, my dear friend who published and wrote for Tennis Week, he wrote a, a, a very interesting piece about Arthur when he basically said, one thing you can say about Ash is he's always trying to get better at whatever he's doing. He never stops trying to improve himself. And that includes improving himself as a human being, but he tried to improve himself as a tennis player. He wasn't a very good commentator to start with, but he improved himself as a commentator. He improved himself as a writer. He improved himself as an activist. He just was always wanting to learn, wanting to grow. And God knows what he would have achieved if he'd been allowed to live, because he was on his way to achieving an awful lot, uh, given the short time he was allowed. But... Um, he was, uh, he was just a remarkable character, and he was, he was lovable. I, I don't think I've, I've ever said I, I love another man very often, but I loved Arthur. He was, there was something about him that was very endearing, and you just sort of loved the guy. Well, I don't know about you, but that brought a bit of a lump to my throat. The words of tennis broadcaster and writer Richard Evans... And earlier, you heard from John McEnroe, Bjorn Borg, Mats Velander and Cliff Trysdale, all agreeing that Arthur Ashe was a very special human being. So that's it for another edition of the Tennis Podcast. We'll be back soon with an update on the US Open and for further thoughts from the stars of the ATP Champions Tour. Don't forget that the Statoil Masters Tennis takes place at the Royal Albert Hall in London in December and we'll be hearing from one of its stars, John McEnroe, soon on the Tennis Podcast. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com <laughs>